Welcome to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that explores human behavior, and in this episode, behavior change through a behavioral science lens. We like to explore both the why behind our behaviors as well as the how in order to change that behavior. I'm Kurt Nelson, a behavioral scientist with over 20 years of applying these insights with companies from around the world. And I'm Tim Houlihan. I've worked with top academics and corporate leaders to improve employee motivation, drive behavior change, and find ways to utilize behavioral science to improve work in a variety of settings and contexts. Behavioral Grooves is the podcast where we have deep and mostly fun conversations with researchers, authors, and practitioners to find the best thinking, explore the newest findings, and reveal insights on how you can utilize behavioral science to improve your work and life. Yeah, and we are super excited to start our fifth season off with a phenomenally bright and always insightful Katie Milkman. K- K- wait, wait, we, hold on. We have seasons? I, I did not know that we had seasons. Yeah, yeah, this is our uh, fifth, yeah. Since when did we start having seasons? <laughs> well, I mean, we've been at this since 2017. Do you think we just got a, it's like one really Long season that's lasted 230 episodes? Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> I guess <laughs> I did. Well, think, okay, so think about it this way. Think about seasons this way. Like, while they may not have been identified as such anywhere, the first season really started with episode one with James Heyman. Of course. Okay. Season two kicks off with episode 47, which was Barry Ritholtz there. Oh, and you know, remember that that's still our number one downloaded episode of all time. Okay, all right, that makes sense. Okay, and then let's end season two with Katie Milkman at episode 99. So Katie, yeah, because she's been on the show three times now. Okay. Okay, let's start season three with our special live from Philadelphia 100th episode edition with Annie Duke, Michael Halsworth, and Jeff Chrysler. Yep. All right. Got it. So that makes sense. That's season three. All right. And then season four gets underway when we interviewed that amazing Gary Latham episode in episode 147. All right. I get that. Okay. Okay. So I think we're overdue for a new season. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) All right. right. That's that's pretty cool. I I wish I would have known we had seasons. I might have been (laughs) taking this whole thing in and very differently. So with seasons, though. So does this mean we get to change some things up since it's a new season and all, and this episode is on behavior change? Can we change some things? I think I see where you're going with there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's make this a fresh start. <laughs> so, oh, so just a few things we will be exploring in this fresh start include having theme months, like with July is going to be focused on applying behavioral science to customer and employee engagement issues, basically in the world of business. And we're also separating out our grooving sessions into their own separate mini episodes. We're going to focus those grooving sessions on impact and applications to provide our listeners with more actionable takeaways. Uh, Okay. So when I was talking or thinking about change, I was Thinking like, can we have a beer when we record these? <laughs> but, but no, those are all fantastic change ideas, Tim. I'm just aren't yeah. we loopy enough? Like, do we really need beer to help us get there? <laughs> <laughs> so true, true. Okay, okay. So just let me make sure I get this. A quick recap here. So this episode is our conversation with Katie only, 
right? Yeah, right. And then the next episode, the one that's going to immediately follow this, is our grooving session about our conversation with Katie. That's a, some cool change, right? Okay, yeah. All right. And so let's begin. Let's, let's start with introducing Season 5's inaugural guest, Katie Milkman is the James G. Dinan Professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and holds a secondary appointment at Penn's Perlman School of Medicine. Her research explores ways that insights from economics and psychology can be harnessed to change consequential behaviors for good. We spoke to her about her new best-selling book, How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. We also talked about a project that she started with Angela Duckworth, the Behavior Change for Good initiative that uses large-scale or mega experiments to explore many different behavior change ideas with over 150 of the top researchers in the world. And listeners, beyond Katie and this week's episode, next week we will be starting off the month of business-themed episodes with Matthew Wilcox, talking about how behavioral science can be extremely beneficial for marketing and talking about his updated book, The Business of Choice. So with that, we invite you to sit up and change out your usual drink with something new, fresh, and exciting as you listen to our conversation with Professor Katie Milkman. Katie Milkman, welcome to Behavioral Grooves again. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so excited to be back. <laughs> I'm so glad to be able to say again. That, I think that's pretty good. Let's get started with a speed round so we don't delay. Which would you rather have, coffee or tea? Tea. And is that honey tea after 13 interviews in a day? Is that how that works? Honey only goes in the tea when it's been a really long day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which is the better James Patterson novel? Along Came a Spider or The President is Missing? Or if you don't have either of those, what's your favorite James Patterson? Along Came a Spider is my preferred of those two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Pretty All pretty right. great. Hard to not like that one. Okay. Is it better to be a rigid Rachel or a flexible Fernando when it comes to setting up new habits? Better to be a flexible Fernando. And I suspect we will talk about why. <laughs> you bet we will. You bet we will. We will come back to that. We'll come back to that. We have one last speed round question. And should a major league baseball manager trade for a hot hitting batter or one who is performing below average from the opposite league at the trade deadline in the middle of the season? If they can get a good deal on the one who's betting, batting low, that fresh <laughs> start may kick in and, and they'll get a great outcome. Which is really interesting because in your book, you talk about that. You talk about this really interesting piece because I would have made the assumption, and I think many of our listeners probably would have made that assumption that, ooh, no, at the trade line, you go for that hot hitter. You go for the person who's doing well, particularly if you can get them again, if you could get both for the, a similar price, that would be it. But that's not necessarily what the research said, is it? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, you know, the uh, it depends on the price. Certainly, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's a really important thing to flag. It depends on the price. The the there should be a presumption that you can get a slightly better deal on the the person who's having a rough time. But this is research by Heng Chen Dai of UCLA, who's formerly my PhD student, now a brilliant uh, independent professor. And this was part of her dissertation work. She was interested in what we'd studied, the fresh start effect. And she was interested in whether or not it could ever actually 
be harmful. So we had shown in our work together that at moments that feel like fresh starts or new beginnings, people are particularly motivated to pursue their goals and achieve more. They go to the gym more frequently. They they set new goals more frequently. They search for the term diet on Google more frequently and so on. So we knew there was this beautiful feature of fresh starts, that this disruption to your life can be a moment for starting something new and positive. But she was curious if maybe they had an ugly underbelly. It was something we talked about a lot. If you're doing really well, could a fresh start be a disruption that's unwelcome? And so the way she ended up studying this, she did a bunch of laboratory experiments too, but the really cool part of her dissertation analyzed data from Major League Baseball, and it looked at two different kinds of fresh starts, trades to new teams if you're in the middle of the season, but she compared what happens when you're traded within league versus across leagues. So both people, you know, pack their bags, move to a new town, deal with a lot of stuff that you'd call a fresh start, but one fresh start is bigger. When you're traded across leagues, all of your season-to-date statistics are reset. So your batting average, if you've been batting really well, it dis- that disappears, and now you have to start with a blank slate and build up that reputation again. So she wondered if that kind of trade would produce any differences in player performance post-trade. Uh, she analyzed players who otherwise were essentially identical statistically, but some of whom were traded cross leagues, some of whom were traded within league. And what she found is that if you're performing poorly, the cross league trade gives you more of a bump than the within league trade because you get that clean slate. You've had a rough time. It gives you that fresh start, the kind that we'd been studying so far that was good and motivating. You know, that was the old me. This is the new me. I can do better. But if you're overperforming and you get that cross-league trade and you lose your record, it's actually harmful and, and more harmful than a within-league trade. And that is the really fascinating part is that you don't want the disruption when you're on a roll. And it makes sense when you think about it, but it hadn't been studied. And I thought that was a really, really excellent way to explore it in this data set. That's fantastic. That really is cool data to have from the real world. It just reinforces all how important these these principles are, right? That they actually play out in the real world, which I love about the book, by the way. We are talking about how to change the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. And uh, we, we love it. Let's just start there, <laughs> that we love it. But I want to jump back to the to the flexible Fernando, right? There is, we think about creating habits to, to create change. And there's certainly a, a thought that, well, wouldn't it be more better to be a rigid Rachel, like, doggone it, I'm going to go to the gym every single day, but I might not. Uh, so is it is the flexible Fernando, you said that the flexible Fernando is actually maybe a better way of approaching it. Could you talk a little bit about these two sort of paradigms and, and why flexible Fernando is better? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually find it helpful to sort of think of the following thought experiment, which is what basically motivated us to do this research. So imagine two people, both at the beginning of a new year with a fresh start, you know, at their back, decide they want to form a lasting exercise routine. And they sign up for sessions for a month with a personal trainer to try to kickstart that lasting habit. And imagine one of them just by chance ends up with a trainer whose philosophy is all about uh, consistency. And that trainer says, you know, we're going to meet three times a week and we're always going to meet at the same time. You pick the time of day that's best for you. That's when we'll do it. We'll do it three times a week for the next month. And then you'll have built a lasting habit around exercising at that time. So that would be sort of the rigid Rachel approach. Let's say the other person gets a trainer with a different philosophy. And that trainer says, uh, you know, tell us your ideal time. We'll try to meet 
about half the time at that ideal time, but we're going to mix it up a bit because we want to make sure you don't become too rigid, that you have some flexibility, that you're comfortable going to the gym at multiple times. We'll do it three times a week um, in this pattern of mixing it up. And after a month, you'll be all set with a really robust lasting habit. So the research question we asked was, which of these trainers' philosophies is right? And we did a big experiment at Google to find out with 2,500 employees who went through a month-long program and either basically were compelled to exercise both at the same frequency but in different patterns. So one group went 85% of the time at the same time. The other group went only half the time at that sort of regular time. And what we were frankly very surprised to discover is that it was better to have a less consistent routine when it came to durability in the habit. Well, it it was for a reason that makes sense once you think about it. So when we dug into the data, what we found is, as we'd expected, having that consistency in your routine did lead to more gym visits at your regular time after the programming ended, right? So if you're a 7 a.m. person and you went 85% of the time at 7 a.m. and then the program ends um, and you compare that your exercise to someone else who is a 7 a.m. person but only went half the time at 7 a.m., the rigid 7 a.m. person goes a bit more at 7 a.m. after the program. And so they have built more of a habit around that magic time. But the kicker is if they don't make it to the gym at 7 a.m., they don't go at all. And the other person, the flexible Fernando, misses their 7 a.m. workout, well, then they go at noon, or maybe they go at 4 p.m. And net-net, they actually go considerably more regularly because Maybe I shouldn't say considerably. They go a little bit more regularly. <laughs> These differences are not vast, but but there is a difference. And it was very surprising because we expected it to go in the opposite direction. And I know you've you've either you've done or there's been other research done about even just having that flexibility in your schedule. So if I'm going to go and I'm going to say I want to go five days a week or I'm going to go seven days a week, but I got two flexible days versus going all seven days and there's some elements of that that come into play as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is a really a related idea, and I love this research. It's by Marissa Sharif of Wharton and Suzanne Shu of Cornell. Marissa led this work as part of her dissertation. She's now my colleague in the marketing department. And the insight she had, it's related but different. We were looking at the brittleness of routines within a day, essentially, right, that you need to have flexibility in case something goes wrong to sort of have a fallback plan instead of just throwing up your hands and saying, I give up um, on, a, on a given moment. And she was sort of looking across time and had a very similar insight. And she was a runner. And the insight came from her own running experiences. She used to try to go for a run every day, but realized sometimes she just couldn't do it, right? Something gets in the way. She had to travel for work or, you know, she had an out-of-town guest or whatever. It is. She, she hurts herself a little bit and needs a day off. And she found that uh, there's a challenge because if she misses a day, she might sort of throw up her hands and say, oh, what the hell, I give up this whole goal of running regularly. It's not for me. And and that's a well-known phenomenon, by the way. It's called the what the hell effect. (laughs) (laughs) If you have a goal failure, you throw up your hands and abandon the goal entirely. So she, as a clever behavioral scientist, came up with this trick. And she said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to aim for the big goal because tougher goals are more motivating. I'm going to try to go seven days a week. But I'm going to give myself two skip days or emergency reserves, she called them, because she really wanted to frame them as only in an emergency. And if there's an emergency, I'll be able to take the day off and I won't count it against myself. We'll still call it a full week of exercise. Okay, so she studied this not with exercise, but with um, productivity, having people come and do a task they'd be paid to do every day. And she had different groups. She randomized people to either be have the goal of doing this task seven days a week 
and getting a bonus if they did, or only having the goal of doing it five days a week and getting a bonus if they did, or the goal of seven days a week with two emergency reserves uh, and getting a bonus if they, you know, so that's the equivalent note of five days a week. But what she found is that uh, it was dramatically more motivating. The best outcomes arrive for the folks who were in this emergency reserve group. They got the benefits of the tough goal that they were aiming for, but the flexibility not to throw up their hands and give up on themselves when they had a rough day because they could turn in an emergency reserve. So I think it's a really nice insight and it's a different way of thinking about flexibility in goal achievement. But, but both point really to the same key idea, which is that rigidity is not going to work out well in the end because things get in the way and we need ways to recover when we have small failures, whether it's in the course of a day or in the course of a week or a month. um, We need different strategies that will help us get back up again and not give up on ourselves. Yeah. And it kind of ties into some of that motivation that comes from streaks and knowing that if you have a streak and now, well, that I'm still in the streak because I have these emergency days. And so you can continue to do that. So fantastic. Absolutely right. And streaks, the, the one downside of streaks that has been studied is that when they break, that can be really demotivating. So exactly these emergencies can help patch that problem with streaks. You talked about goal setting a little bit. To what degree does goal setting play in the changing of our behaviors? You know, how important is it? There's lots of research showing that it's helpful to have concrete, actionable, and stretch goals. But I will say that I am a little bit frustrated by how often people think that's all that's needed and Mm -hmm. stop there. And sort of the guruism around goals, I think it's a great start. We should have goals. There's no question. But it's nowhere near enough. We have to do a lot more to achieve goals than just write them down or tell them to someone. And and so, you know, that's part of actually why I wrote this book about how to change because I wanted to make sure people understood there's a lot more to achieving your goals than just naming them. (laughs) (laughs) Can you say I want to change my behavior without a goal? Sure. You could say, I would like to change without a goal, but it's hard It's hard to imagine how you are going to get from here to there if you aren't concrete and specific about what are the things you need to do. And part of, part of what makes goals effective is if you ha- actually break them down and have plans and break them down into bite-sized chunks. So one of the things that I've studied and others have studied and I write about a bit in the book is how valuable it can be if instead of having a big long-term goal, and Albendura was writing about this in the 1970s, legendary Stanford psychologist, so I don't want (laughs) to pretend this is like my new idea. This is an extremely well-studied topic. But I think there's some really great research that's come out even in the last couple of years that shows how big the effects are in the wild of doing that kind of breakdown. So one of my favorite studies of this is by Hal Hirschfeld of UCLA. He was the lead author on this project with Shlomo Benartzi and Steve Shu. And what they did is they uh, invited people to start saving. And they either said, do you want to save $5 a day? Or some people were invited to save $35 a week. Or some people were invited to save $150 a month. And it is exactly the same decision. But the $5 a day, that bite size offer was much more attractive, many more people saved. And in a similar vein, my amazing PhD student Anish Rai led a project where an organization that uh, had a volunteer workforce was trying to figure out how to boost volunteering hours. People were committing to work 200 hours 
a year as volunteers for this organization, but many weren't fulfilling that for many reasons that we could <laughs> get into. Uh, and what we found is that sending people reminders to try to volunteer four hours a week or eight hours every two weeks uh, significantly increased volunteering over a period of many months compared to sending reminders to do a little each week um, of that 200-hour goal and that giving them that concrete bite size way of thinking about the goal was so important. I think that it roughly increased volunteering by 8% for months on end, just to simply break it down. So those are a couple of studies that I think point to how valuable it is when you set a goal to actually break it down into a bite-sized component so you won't procrastinate and you'll feel that you can actually make some progress. So Katie, you talked a little bit about, all right, I wanted to look at people. To I wrote this book because there are lots of different things that people are thinking about in when they're trying to change. So what was the impetus, in other words, for writing the book from your perspective? Yeah, there there were a number of, is it impeti, impetuses? <laughs> the plural of whatever that would be, yes. I didn't even think about plural. But I don't think impeti doesn't, doesn't sound like a word, but I kind of want to invent it. Um, <laughs> hey, you can do that. That's that's uh, the, the PhD after your name. You can just say it, and this is how it works. That's how it goes. And you're a podcaster, so podcasters get to do that. I hereby claim impeti as my word of 2021. <laughs> let's put it in the Urban Dictionary. Anyway, there were a number of reasons that I wrote the book. You know, reason one, I love communicating about science. So I think I always had the ambition to write something that would be useful someday about the work I was doing. It didn't just it didn't gel that this was the obvious book to write until a few years ago when Angela Duckworth and I had co-founded this initiative, the Behavior Change for Good initiative. I'd sort of decided I was going to commit all of my time to the study of behavior change, that this was my number one priority as a scholar rather than studying some of the other fun topics that I had engaged with previously, I was going to focus. And then also, we built this team of about 150 scientists around the world. And as I learned more and more about this interdisciplinary group's work and started to really feel like I could wrap my arms around the whole literature on behavior change, not only my narrow stream of research, I realized there was enough there to produce something quite useful already, even though I think the rest of my career will be spent studying this topic and there's so much we don't know. So that was the first reason was like, or maybe the first reason was I've always wanted to communicate about science. The second reason was I felt like I knew enough to write a really useful book. And I guess I'd say the third reason is that I felt like there were some important misconceptions out there and a lot of information missing from the general discourse, right? There's a lot of self-help books. And I will admit now, even though I had trouble saying it initially, that ultimately my book is kind of a self-help book. I mean, it's a science book and it helps hopefully organizations as well, because there's definitely a, a focus on how can managers use this to promote change. But probably 60% of it is about how can you help yourself with these insights. But the self-help literature is mostly, you know, it's mostly guruism, not much science out there. And a lot of incorrect things, a lot of incorrect knowledge is being shared. And I felt like I also had a responsibility to try to correct that. One of the biggest misconceptions we already talked about a little bit is sort of like that there's a one and done kind of or one thing you need to know and then magically you'll be changed forevermore, right? Set big audacious goals or visualize success or whatever, you know, pick your favorite guru's favorite thing. But what the research I've done over my career suggests is there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. There are there are certainly lots of things that are helpful to lots of people, but 
the most useful advice I can give an individual or an organization that wants to create behavior change is to first try to figure out, you know, what are the obstacles in this particular context? Because they differ, right? I'll, I'll say if you're a person who's trying to motivate yourself to go to the gym, which is a, you know, it's a workhorse example in behavior change. It's like our fruit fly of... <laughs> for the study of habits. It's observable. It's, you know, repeated. People are, it's objective data is available. We study the gym a lot. Uh, Not because we're fundamentally that interested in the gym. It's just a good place to study the stuff. Anyway, say you, you wanted to get yourself to go to the gym. There'd be a really different approach that's likely to be useful for you if the reason you aren't going is that you find it miserable versus you've you know, you basically never make the time for it and you love it when you're there, but you haven't worked it into your schedule. So, I mean, it's a really simple example. It's really intuitive. Like you need different solutions to those different problems. And there's a lot of different problems that can obstruct change. And we know a lot more about each of them. And we know a lot about what science says works in each context. So I really wanted to also communicate the importance of that diagnosis process and which different solutions seem to be most effective at tackling which kinds of problems. Yeah, that's great. Let's go back to what you talked about here, though, is this behavior change for good. So you and Angela Duckworth put this together. What what year was that? When did it start? 2018, 19? I think we officially formed the initiative in 2017, but we really started work on it in 2016. We just wasn't fully (laughs) gelled as an initiative until 2017. That's when it was like blessed by the university and given space. (laughs) Yeah. Tell our listeners just in Big picture, what was, uh, what is behavior change for good? And, and what are you guys trying to achieve? So it's an initiative, which is basically just a word for a research center that has slightly less in its endowment than a research center. <laughs> so if anyone, by the way, is listening and wants to send us a check, we we are not yet a research center. We are an initiative um, at the University of Pennsylvania. And we bring together scholars from around the globe. Our goal is to really be the epicenter of research on behavior change. We're trying to advance the science of behavior change as as quickly as possible and also to disseminate knowledge about that science. As time has passed, it has become clearer and clearer what our area of expertise really is. It's not just that we're studying behavior change, but that we actually have a a new model for doing this kind of research that we've pioneered and, and think we're pretty good at. And the model is doing something we call a mega study. So Typically, research on behavior change is done where scientists or team of scientists, they have a hypothesis, they find a research partner, potentially if they are doing a field study instead of something in the laboratory with undergraduates filling out surveys. And I've always been a field researcher because I I have more fun when I get to play in the field. So typically, you test your hypothesis with a partner, one at a, you, you know, you write one paper and, you know, this hypothesis was true or it's false, and that's how science progresses. And it's kind of slow, frankly, because, you know, there's a lot of fixed cost to finding the partner. What if your hypothesis is wrong? You might not publish that even because there's not a big appetite for learning about null results. We thought, what if we could do this on a much bigger scale, more like the way hard science is done. My husband's a physicist, so he's like, what you're doing is not new. This is how hard science is always done. <laughs> really big team science. Um, but we we put together this team, and what we now do, these mega studies we run, instead of one hypothesis being tested at once, we test dozens of hypotheses simultaneously. So we'll find a research partner. So our first partner for a mega study I'll mention is was 24-Hour Fitness, a really mm-hmm. large gym chain at the time they had 
over 4 million members around the U.S., um, hundreds of locations. And we said, we're going to, you know, Jim, it's our, it's our, it's our fruit flies. Lots of good fruit flies. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, <laughs> it's the fruit fly spot for habit research. We'll start there. And we put out a call to all our team scientists. What are your best ideas on hypotheses about how we can help people build workout routines and workout habits? And we ended up then building an experiment that instead of having, you know, a couple of experimental conditions to test one hypothesis, it had 54 experimental conditions and tested 20 separate hypotheses all at once with the same population, the same outcome variable measured. So we can do all sorts of nice things, making comparisons about cost effectiveness of different treatments. We can bring together scientists from different disciplines who think about the world differently. And we'll, we encourage each team of scientists to build their own sort of self-contained study within our mega study. And they can publish that the way they would normally publish research in their preferred journal. But then we aggregate all of the learnings and basically put out a mega study paper, a meta paper about um, what worked best and also what failed, which I think is really important because we can put the null results out there in a way that often in our field, when you you find something doesn't work, it just goes in your back pocket because it's not incentivized to put that knowledge out there. And so I think that's another important thing. There's lots of benefits of it, but uh, that's what we have ended up specializing in at the Behavior Change for Good Initiative and, and trying to create value by leading this team of now, like I said, about 150 scientists. I think we were 30-ish at the inception. We just keep growing to do this kind of work. And I'm glad you didn't name it behavior change for evil, but that, that is a... <laughs> I'm glad we didn't either. And, and we're very careful to make sure that the work we're doing is we sort of stay away even from gray areas uh, and, and only focus on outcomes that where you see a social value. Where did you get the bug? Weren't you an engineering undergrad? I was. And I was an engineering PhD student, actually. My PhD technically was granted by a computer science department. It's a joint program with business, but it was granted by the computer scientists, which I'm sure somebody there every once in a while remembers and, and groans. Where did you get the behavior <laughs> bug? <laughs> I got it in graduate school when I was in this joint PhD program, and I had to take a microeconomics sequence a graduate microeconomics seminar it was a requirement because of the business component of the program. And I had taken microeconomics as an undergrad, and I will I will readily admit I hated it so much. <laughs> I actually thought I was going to be an economics major going. I went to Princeton. I entered in the Bachelor of Arts program. I took microeconomics 101, and I was like, what is this garbage they're feeding me about <laughs> rational actors optimizing things? Are you kidding? Have you met me? Have you met my roommates? Like, that is not how we make our decisions. So I, I hated it so much that I went to summer school in order to become an engineer and, you know, catch up on all the requirements I'd missed because I was like, well, at least I can do something applied that uses math that isn't garbage. But I really, <laughs> okay. I really hated microeconomics with a passion. In graduate school, it was taught really differently because I, I was at Harvard and there was this new field of behavioral economics that was catching on there. It's kind of ironic. I was a Princeton undergrad, which is where Danny Kahneman was, yeah. you know, did his Nobel Prize winning work that basically started the field. Well, right. he, he did the work before he was at Princeton, but he was at yeah. Princeton yeah. when I was there. And I never heard of it. Never went. I, you know, I have friends who took a, a seminar with him. I didn't. I had no idea who he was. But I got to Harvard. Some of his ideas had had such an impact that there was a little sub-community in the economics department that was really excited about behavioral economics. And it, it had seeped into the curriculum for the graduate classes. And 
I had to take this class. I was thinking I would hate it. And then he started telling me about things like prospect theory and how losses loom larger than gains and present bias on hyperbolic discounting and how, you know, we overweight the present value of an option and vastly underweight the long-term value. And, and that can help explain why people impulse spend and don't go to the gym and eat junk food. And all of a sudden I was like, whoa, this is this is great. You get it. This is what I hated about economics, but there's a field that's fixing it. And so I, you know, I fell in love and basically never looked back. Uh, and yeah, that's the story of how I became interested in studying behavior change. Thank goodness I was in a wonky, small graduate program where they said, sure, you can make a U-turn and do whatever you want. <laughs> well, and you've talked a lot about some of your students that have gone on to do great things. And and if you think about this, you, your, your mentor was Max Bazerman, right? My mentor was Max Bazerman. I'm so lucky. And we've had him on the show. He's fantastic. It's absolutely just an amazing, brilliant man. But, you know, obviously there's something special about Max, right? That that kind of sets him apart. But what do you think that is? What What is it that sets Max apart and puts him kind of, because if you look at all of the people that he's mentored, oh, yeah. oh my the, gosh, again, the family tree, this, yeah. as, as you've described in the book, this tree, this, this element of all of these yes. great researchers. I love that you're letting me talk about Max and my favorite chapter maybe in, in the book, which is about his magic touch. Max is amazing. He is, you know, an un paralleled mentor in terms of the success of his prior students. They are now top professors around the world. Basically, everyone he works with achieves at the highest levels. It's unbelievable. And when I was first an assistant professor and starting to take on my own students, including Heng Shen Dai, actually, who we talked about earlier, and I wanted to make sure that I had this brilliant young woman, what could I do to ensure that she would be a success? And so I have a philosophy of try to learn what other people have done. You know, if And this is in the book, too. If there's And I've studied it. If there's someone else out there who succeeded copying and pasting, it's the best strategy. So I wrote Max this very goofy, nerdy email. I actually found it <laughs> I dug it up and and the email basically said, Max, what's your algorithm? I literally said, what's your algorithm? Like, how are you? That, that's nerdy. I, yes, I, am, I truly am a nerd. I was like, how are you training all these students? They're all turning out so well. What do you do? I want to do it too because I want to help these amazing people who are walking into my office succeed the way you help people succeed. And he wrote me back an email that I was, you know, very humble, classic Max style, basically saying the, the key message was like, it's not me, it's them. They're amazing. These amazing students just keep walking into my office and they would succeed whether I was there or not. It's not me. But then, you know, he, he gave me some tips, too. He said a few things like, you know. I meet with them regularly and I introduce them to important people in the field when they're in from out of town. So he but it was like the stuff everyone does. So I was baffled because I couldn't figure out what was his secret sauce. Clearly, you know, a lot of good mentors are doing the things that he suggested doing, but there was something more that was working for his students. And I, I will say that I think one of the key things I think helped now that I understand the literature on, on success a bit better and, and on behavior change, I think uh, there are actually not one thing. There's sort of two things that he did that I think were really important, but they both related to confidence. Mm. which is a really big challenge, particularly in academia. PhD programs are brutal. 
They destroy egos. People come in <laughs> having been a star in their undergraduate experience, and there's a lot of uncertainty. Is my a lot of rejection? Will my paper ever get published? Is my are my ideas any good? You're trying to measure up, and uh, there was a survey done of PhD students that we learned about at a Wharton faculty meeting, showing that in top social science PhD programs, mental health is about as about the same as it is in prisoner populations, which is just astounding, astounding, right? These are like the best and brightest in these incredibly competitive, awesome programs. Their lives are going to be great, by the way, at the end. But something about it's a pressure cooker and it crushes souls. And (laughs) one of the things I think Max did is like, I never felt that. I had an amazing time. He made us feel like part of his family. He had total faith in us that he conveyed anytime something went wrong. He basically said, don't worry about it. You know, yeah, you got that paper rejected. It's going to get in. He created a community where his older students were advising his younger students on projects or working with them and, and therefore coaching them. And so we, I, I actually call the other people who I grew up with in grad school my siblings. And I yep. think, you know, we have... wow gatherings together it was this community and i think i think the a couple of the things that mattered so much were that unshakable faith he had in our success which basically rubbed off and there's this wonderful research if you know the placebo effect you basically know the research showing that when you believe something will happen it's more likely that it actually does because it it boosts your confidence and your expectations change and that shapes your actions and actually sometimes even your physiology so mm-hmm. i think i think max was giving us a good old dose of the placebo effect every time he told us like, yeah, your paper was rejected, but we'll get in. I think that was part of the magic. And then another thing he did was this um, strategy of having us coach younger students, each generation, that that showed faith in us. And it also put us in the role of a mentor. And there's research that was led by Lauren Estris Winkler that I got to be involved in at some stages and or in some of the projects showing that If you are put in the position of a coach to someone else, if you give them advice, it actually helps you achieve similar goals because it builds your confidence to be put on that pedestal. It makes you introspect about what will work for someone else because you need to give them some wisdom. And that introspection might dredge up insights you wouldn't have come up with otherwise. And then finally, you're going to feel like a hypocrite if you don't walk the talk after telling someone else to do this. So I think Max, by having these pairings where the more senior students were coaching and helping the younger students and acting as mentors. He gave us that confidence boost and that the reason to do that introspection. And, we, you know, I if I have to explain to someone else how to write this paper properly, how to write a referee report, how to do this and that, collect data, I'm actually learning as I'm coaching. So my suspicion is that those were a couple of key ingredients in his formula. And I've tried to put them to work in my research group, too. And You know, I have a smaller family tree, but I will just say that one of the most touching things that's happened to me since this book came out is that um, I'm now vaccinated and so is our, so were my students. One of my students came over outdoors and dropped off a family tree that he he Aww. and my other students had created. It's much smaller than Max's, but I do have some wonderful. <laughs> but it will, it, you're at the very beginning. It's the tree that will grow. So I hope so. And I'm so proud of my amazing students and actually dedicated the book to my academic family as well as my biological family, because those are the two groups that have really made my career possible and fun. So very lucky to be on Max's family tree and have my own that's beginning to grow and flourish. I have to I have to say that that part of the book I actually put in 
place with my own family, with my kids. I actually had my older son because of that, because of what you just talked about, had my older son basically say, hey, can you teach your your sister how to do this and and use that? And it's been, you know, I haven't seen the full effect of it yet, but I'm I'm it was it was pretty interesting because he like normally he would have like dug in his heels of like doing stuff and it was like, all right, I'll I'll do it, you know, and and there was there was that com- camaraderie. So we'll There's see. There's also the pride that comes with it yeah. that I think is really interesting. When we we did this random assignment study with high school students where some of them were asked to coach their younger peers, just in a, you know, a survey, they write, just wrote notes about how to study more effectively to younger peers. And it, it ended up boosting the advice givers grades significantly in that quarter of the academic year when they did it in, in the class they most hoped to improve in and in math. But one of the things that was really interesting about it was how we got reports from the teachers that the students were saying, that was so cool. When can I do that again? No one ever asks me for my advice. And they loved it. So I also think that's a wow. neat aspect of this is that not only does it have all these benefits in terms of your outcomes, but it feels good. People love yeah. it. They love giving yeah. advice to other people. It feels great. All right. And so with that, I, I need to ask this one question because I need your advice. Because uh, so a couple of <laughs> weeks ago, you were at the BSPA conference and you were talking there. And at that same conference there, Thaler, uh, Kahneman and Cialdini were uh, one of the keynotes and they were talking about different things. And so in the chat, I posed this question in their big, so it's Nobel laureates, right? And and Bob Cialdini. And National who, Academy of Sciences member, yes. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, so you know. Same status. <laughs> yeah, same, pretty much, right? And so we're asking, I asked a question in the comments. I said, given that, and it was basically about trying to get people to change their beliefs around vaccination and different things like that. And I said, given that Trump and other GOP leaders have gotten vaccinated, but are not actively promoting getting vaccinated, is there a way of getting that message across without their explicit support? And so with that, I thought, all right, somebody else is, you know, some of the other people are going to talk about that or different things. But no, Richard Thaler, Nobel laureate Richard Thaler replied to me and he said this, sure, read Katie Milkman's book, How to Change. That was it. That was the, that was what he said. So I have you here. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, I'm so flattered and I didn't know that and that I feel like I should tell my publisher to put that on our um, Amazon page. Yes. (laughs) I, I will go out there. I will do that, um, at, at least in my own comments. So there you go. Um, so you want me to tell you how to get everyone to get a vaccine? How do we get people to, to be more vaccinated? How do we get them to, to you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it, it is, it's a question, honestly, that has been the focus of my research attention for roughly the last year when it became obvious to me and, and others in the behavioral science community that not only was it going to be really important to get out of this pandemic for brilliant scientists to develop vaccines, not only was it going to be really important for supply chains to be scaled, those things started getting a lot of attention right around this time last year. But no one was talking about the third problem that was obvious to us, which was, uh, but we have to make sure people want to take them and that you know they're comfortable with it once the safety data comes out, assuming these are safe vaccines and they're recommended. It's going to be a behavior change problem for some folks to get on board. So uh, I think, you know, there's many answers from research. I wrote an yeah. economist op-ed sharing like a lot of different insights, but a highlight, we partnered with Walmart and two local health systems, Penn Medicine and Geisinger, to do a mega study to figure out what kind of messaging would be most effective to encourage people to follow through on getting a vaccine. We used actually 
flu shots last fall as our test bed because we we wanted to study actual behavior and not attitudes or self-report. We know from actually this work and other work that when you ask people what messages will change their behavior, you get really different answers than when you actually look and see what changes their behavior. So we didn't want to trust self-report. We tested dozens of different messages and across all sites, you know, we tested things like telling people a joke about vaccination or telling them, you know, everybody else is doing it or do it to protect the people you love or highlighting all of the uh, downsides of getting sick. We tried lots of things. At every site where we ran this test, Geisinger Health, Penn Medicine, and Walmart, and these are really different settings because Geisinger and Penn Medicine are trying to convince you. They send you a text message three days before you come in for a healthy visit with a doctor. And the question is, do you accept a vaccine when it's offered to you? Walmart Pharmacy is just texting you and trying to get you to, you know, drive into your pharmacy and ask for a vaccine. Very different decisions. Everywhere was the same best performer. And the message that worked best was very simple. It basically was this flu vaccine has been reserved for you, or this vaccine is waiting for you. Sort of an endowment effect, default type of message. Very clinical. Things that were cute and jokey and informal, by the way, did not perform well in general. It was, it was the sort of more clinical kind of communication you expect from a healthcare provider. And this reserve for you conveys it's yours. It belongs to you, you know, and now maybe it feels like a loss to give it up. It, there's also a presumption that that you want it and it's recommended when someone frames something as a default. So I think that's useful. And we're seeing lots and lots of communications now that are using that insight. We've got the work out there as quickly as we could and have been talking about it as widely as we could. There's also great research by Gretchen Chapman, who's a team scientist, showing if you actually give people, schedule an appointment for them to come and get a vaccine and say, hey, here's your date and time when we've scheduled. You You can reschedule, but we're giving you an appointment. That increases the number of people who follow through by 36% relative to just sending them a reminder that they can come anytime, they can make an appointment, because again, of that default effect. So those are things that are useful. I think conveying it's a social norm. Everybody's doing it is useful. I'm really excited about some of these lotteries, which mm-hmm. make it fun, gamify it, make it seem exciting. Like there's a big opportunity and we overweight those small probabilities. So, uh, you know, we're, we're continuing to do work in this area and figure out what could be most effective. But those are a few insights already. Well, you have definitely responded to Richard's uh, statement there very well. So thank you for that. And, um, you know, we talked with Gretchen actually right at the beginning of this about some of those things. And so, you know, it, it's it's just very great. So And part of our team, I should mention, all these people that we're talking about are all part of the Behavior Change for Good initiative. And we're oh. so lucky to have them. And she was involved in the work on um, Reserve for You vaccine framing. Between Behavior Change for Good between being a professor, between writing a book and being a podcaster, do you have any time for music in your life? There's a lot of research that says that, you know, music lifts our spirits and keeps us, you know, a little bit buoyant. Do you have a playlist these days? I still have music in my life. I will say actually one of my favorite things that I did every day during the pandemic is that my five-year-old son and I turned on uh, TV that we have in our living room to YouTube and watch just dance videos. I don't know if you're familiar with this video game. It's like a video game you can play where it shows you the dance moves for pop songs and you can dance along. And we would dance for 30 minutes to get our exercise in. Even in the dead of winter, this was part of our routine to get moving. So Yes, I like a little temptation bundling there, huh? Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and you know, social. It was social. It was a part of our routine. There are many things that were wonderful about it. 
Anything by Taylor Swift is basically always on my playlist. Still, still. Still, yeah. I think that was the answer the last time. I still love Taylor Swift, and she's made some great new music recently. I'm trying to think of what else we've been listening to lately. It's like Megan Trainer. You know, I really like pop. I really like poppy pop that makes me dance. Katy Perry, who, by the way, I also love for making Katy with a Y, a spelling that people could pronounce. <laughs> So, and also she's from Santa Barbara, which is where my parents lived for 20 years after I went to college and where I've spent a lot of time. One of, one of her songs even references my favorite taqueria in the world, Super Rica, which makes me very happy. So I'll go with those. That's, that's probably the top of my playlist. That's fantastic. And we know that you are bookended on time. And so we just want to say thank you, Katie. It's always a pleasure to have you on Behavioral Grooves. And we, we are grateful for your time and for your contributions today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. I always enjoy talking with you. And thanks for all you do for the behavioral science community by spreading the word about our work to such a broad audience and doing it so well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our discussion with Katie. If you would like to hear what Kurt and me discussing some of the more practical applications, check out our next episode, which is our grooving session on what we learned from Katie. And with that, We hope you go out and find your groove.